If you live in eastern Canada, chances are you're familiar with the spruce budworm, an insect that feeds off the needles from balsam fir and spruce trees. This weakens the trees and, after a few years, eventually kills them. As if that wasn't enough, researchers are now looking at the potential impact that spruce budworm outbreaks could have on climate change. Two scientists from different government departments have hit the ground, literally in this case, to see if this little pest is having an impact on the carbon levels in forest soil. On today's episode, killer insects, scientific collaboration, and elaborate cheese plates. Welcome to a new episode of Simply Science, the podcast that talks about the amazing scientific work that our experts at Natural Resources Canada are doing. My name is Joel Houle, and joining me is my lovely co-host, Barb Ustina. Barb, how's it going? Hello, it's going just great. How are you doing? I'm great. Uh, I'm excited. This is actually our 30th episode wow. of the podcast. Wow. So I'm really excited about that. That's such a that's such an accomplishment. It you is. Know, really, it is. 30, 30 podcasts. Have you ever done a podcast on the spruce budworm before? So yeah, I actually interviewed Rob Johns uh, from our Atlantic region, who works with spruce budworm, and it was a really interesting podcast. Oh yeah, and have you ever seen a spruce budworm in, in person then? Like, have you handled one? Uh, no, no, I, did, I wasn't able to. Uh, it was by phone, uh-huh. uh, but I have seen a lot of photos and videos. Actually, one of Rob's colleagues, Emily Owen, mm-hmm. uh, Owens, has this, um, this video that she issued over social media last year or the year before, and it's her shaking this tree, and you got uh, like hundreds of these moths, these little gray <sighs> moths going up, all over her, and she actually picks it up and shows it to the camera. It's uh, it's really a sight to see. Yeah, like it's it's kind of like they're it's raining moths, right? They're, it because is because they're living on the upper branches or in the branches of the trees. You can shake down a tree and they just come tumbling out like that. I know it kind of almost looks like snow covering yeah. the grass. It's yeah. really really impressive. You know they are incredibly well adapted to life in Canada, uh, the spruce budworm, because they can actually survive a typical Canadian winter. Really? Yeah, and the way they do this is that the larvae can hibernate in the uh, nooks and crannies they find in the upper branches of, of trees. Huh. Um, so in the spring, the larvae emerge and they're ready for action. And for the spruce budworm, that means eating and eating a lot. And that's how they destroy so many forests. They feast on new needles and buds they find on the fir and spruce trees. So that's probably why it causes so much damage, because it's all those new needles, it's all those buds, so the trees can't grow, mm. can't get light. Can't. Wow. Yeah, and exactly. Yeah. It's, it's like an all-you-can-eat buffet for the spruce budworm. That's, that's Springtime, lo- right? That's a lovely visual. <laughs> yeah, I you. hope no one's eating lunch while they're <laughs> listening to this, right? <laughs> anyway, the spruce budworm, eventually the larvae become brown caterpillars, about two centimeters long. And uh, then during the summer months, they transform into grayish-brown moths. Okay, and those are the moths that we see in those videos and those pictures. Mm-hmm. Huh. Mm-hmm. Wow. And uh, get this, as an adult moth, the female will lay up to 200 eggs on the underside of fir and spruce tree needles. Sounds lovely. 200, so it's one female, 200 eggs. Yeah, yeah. and in about two weeks, the eggs hatch, and the larvae hibernate for the winter, getting ready for the destructive cycle to begin all over again in the spring. So right now, they're probably hibernating, getting ready for spring. Wow. Well, I mean, it makes sense that they are causing so much damage to the, the ecosystem of a forest. If you got, like, if every female can lay 200 eggs, it can 
you know, exponentially yeah, grow. Exactly. I tell 200 friends, she tells 200 friends, and so on and so on and so forth. <laughs> it's like a pyramid scheme. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? Let, let's bring in our experts, and they can tell us about the work they're doing with this response. Absolutely. Our guests today are Michael Stashny, who is a forest insect ecologist with Natural Resources Canada, and Louis-Pierre Camus, who is a research scientist working on landscape and soil carbon. He's with Agriculture and Agri-Foods Canada. Can you start by telling us a little bit about what you guys do? Let's start with you, Louis-Pierre. I'm a soil carbon and landscape specialist at Agriculture and Agri-Foods Canada. My specialty is assessing the carbon balance in different environments and different land use. Interesting. Michael, um, can you tell us a little bit about your work with forest insects? Yes, I'm a forest insect ecologist with Natural Resources Canada with the Canadian Forest Service. And I work fairly broadly on um, ecological interactions that involve um, insect pests on uh, forest trees, um, including some invasive pests. And a lot of it is in the context of climate change and how we understand how these insects will behave under under novel climate conditions. Very interesting. Uh, now, before we do a deep dive into the research and the collaboration you're working on together, I just want to get a sense of, uh, just get the spruce budworm question out of the way. And that is for people who aren't familiar with spruce budworms, what are they and, and why is so much attention spent monitoring them? Sure. Spruce budworm is a, is a native moth that lives in the forest, and every three or four decades, it has what we call an outbreak, where its population basically um, explodes into huge numbers, and this is a completely natural phenomenon that we can even trace back in the history. And when that happens, you have caterpillars, the larvae of this moth, that basically consume the needles of fir and spruce trees, and can really decimate the, uh, the, the forest and, and create some uh, conditions for that basically kill the trees eventually. Can you give us an idea of how much damage they're capable of causing and sort of what stage we are at in the outbreak currently? Sure. Um, right now in Atlantic Canada, at least, uh, the, the damage is actually quite minor, um, but the outbreak has been going on for about a decade or more than a decade, actually, in uh, Quebec, started on the North Shore and then it pushed over to the South Shore of the St. Lawrence. Um, it's something like more than 7 million hectares that have already been affected in Quebec. So it's a very large-scale, what we call a disturbance, that can have a major impact on not only how the trees grow and how the forest functions, but also trickles down to things like jobs in the forestry sector and so on. And, and that's that's why spruce budworm outbreaks tend to really um, get a lot of attention when they occur every every few decades. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, Michael, what part of your work made you think that you needed to reach out and get help from some, not help, but maybe there was an opportunity to collaborate with someone from uh, another government department? Yeah, it actually started quite organically. Um, an area of research that hasn't been explored all that much when it comes to spruce budworm is how the impacts of feeding on the trees trickle down to the whole ecosystem. That's something that's been overlooked because historically people worried much more about studying the populations of the budworm, how it impacts the trees, what happens to um, to the trees after they get damaged, but not really the broader picture. And 
um, I started a project with another colleague of mine at, at CFS, Eric Emelson, that basically deals with these broader ecosystem effects. And it just turned out that um, uh, another collaborator of mine, Stephen Hurd at the University of New Brunswick, knew of Louis Pierre and his expertise in soils and, and got the two of us connected. Mm-hmm. So uh, can you give me a sense of uh, what kind of research you're doing and, and how, how you're collaborating together and how that sort of advances your knowledge or presumes to advance the knowledge of uh, the spruce budworm? We have um, in uh, the Gaspé region of Quebec a series of sites that are actually forest watersheds or entire drainage systems of, of forest streams where we're following a whole bunch of um, things that occur during an outbreak, including how the trees are losing their foliage when the larvae are feeding on them, what happens to um, um, the uh, streams and, and the water quality in the streams, what happens to um, abiotic conditions in the forest, um, and cascading down all um, to fish communities and, and things that they feed on in the streams and even bird communities. And we have replicated this experiment over 12 different sites. And those experimental conditions basically lend themselves to um, asking additional questions. And that's where uh, we got the expertise of Louis Pierre um, involved because we're interested in what happens to the soil under the trees that are experiencing the feeding by the budworm. Now, you mentioned 12 different sites and uh, raising additional questions. What were some of those additional questions that came up that, that you're trying to explore now? Um, I think Louis here can probably comment on that even more so, but um, we became interested in basically asking what happens to carbon that's in the soil when you have this influx of both needles, damaged needles falling onto the forest floor, um, the caterpillars um, excreting their their poop, basically, (laughs) and and what happens when you're starting to thin out the canopy as as a result of this feeding which means that there's more light penetrating through the canopy, through the branches of the trees onto the forest floor, and that in turn warms up the soil and and creates different abiotic conditions. And we became interested in how that affects the whole cycling of carbon in the soil and what happens to the communities of organisms in the soil that participate in those processes. So how far along are you in your research? Have you um, come to any conclusions at this point, or are you still trying to analyze the data and your findings? We're still fairly early on. Um, we're, um, we've done a couple of years of field work. Well, really, on this specific project, I guess it's really just one year of field work. We're heading into the second year. And a lot of these processes take, take a little while to, um, to show up in how we measure the ecosystem. And so we're hoping that we'll, we can continue this project for a bit longer. We, we have at least this field season and then one more after that, but it's possible that some of those effects might not really show up until five or maybe even 10 years later, and that's just how um, these ecosystem processes and soils often operate. Um, But in the meantime, we're basically measuring a lot of um, different things so that we can both establish initial conditions, basically uh, baseline data that describes the ecosystem, and follow how over time those conditions change in response to the spruce budworm feeding or in half of our sites where we prevent their feeding through insecticidal treatments that are part of landscape uh, pest management programs in Quebec and 
Atlantic Canada and so on. Louis Pierre, I'd like to hear from you um, the the research that you're doing in the field as well, and how it how it uh, connects with uh, what Michael is doing in the field. Yeah, well, uh, coming back to the previous question of uh, where are we in uh, the project, when it comes to soil carbon sequestration, normally long-term studies are, are needed. So there we would be at the beginning because to be able to assess if an ecosystem is losing soil carbon or gaining soil carbon, normally that takes between five and 10 years of uh, measurements and monitoring. But it's not only about the total soil carbon change that is important. In the soil, there's different pool of organic matter and the carbon. Some of those are turning around really quickly, and other ones are more stable, more recalcitrant with slow change. So my involvement in that project is partly or mainly to assess the balance of soil carbon, but the different pool of organic matters and their turnover rate, all affected by the spruce budworms and the control of the spruce budworms. Mm-hmm. So uh, in terms of carbon and in the soil, then, carbon is really important for the health of soil overall. And I would think that spruce budworms are contributing more carbon to the soil as well as, you know, the the, um, the, the pine needles that are falling on the soil floor. But is that the case? Is is like more carbon always better? On the short terms, when the disease is high and there's a lot of needles falling down onto the soil, we would expect, and I believe we are starting to get the slight increase in carbon at the beginning. But we have to see on the long run because a forest that is dying might, or that is not healthy forest or trees that are sick might increase the amount of carbon into the soil on a short run. And they also might increase only the label carbon. What is important to see is the comparisons on the more long runs or between healthy and unhealthy forests to see. It's not only one pulse extra that is important, but what's going to happen on the long run. Michael, um, if... You guys established some sort of link between a spruce budworm outbreak and uh, an impact uh, of, of carbon um, on climate change. What can we do with that information? How does that change the way that we approach um, monitoring spruce budworm and dealing with the outbreaks? That's a great question and, and not an easy one to answer um, because there are so many variables and so many factors that are considered in how we manage forests. So we can make recommendations based on our results to shift management in a certain direction, but there are always a lot of other competing variables at play. So for example, um, there may be jobs in the forestry sector at stake. Um, there may be reasons to um, control spruce budworm outbreak through insecticides, but in some cases, instead of that, um, they can decide to go ahead with harvesting, so basically um, cut down the trees before the impact really occurs. And so it's a difficult um, balancing act between these different um, different interests and different ways of managing the forest. And I think the bottom line with projects like this is really understanding the system better so we have more information and so we can make our decisions with as much 
knowledge as possible and as much foresight, especially when we're facing challenges like climate change that in itself will carry a lot of uncertainty both in how forest insect pests are behaving and how they're affecting the trees, but also how the trees are responding and then in turn how things like nutrients and nutrient cycling respond to those those factors. And also it's important when uh, at the national levels when we do the greenhouse gas emission accounting, we produce emission factor for different management practice. If a management practice produces more greenhouse gas, then it has to be reported and the national inventories need to report that. So for all the potential management of the spruce budworms, emission factors on that are needed too. Now, I just want to get back to the research itself for, for a brief moment, and that is, I'd like to see if you can take me through sort of a typical day in the field, what it looks like, uh, how many people are on your team, and uh, what kind of work they're doing. I'll, I'll give you a little bit of an idea. We we have quite a few people that rotate through doing the field work, partially because we have, um, I guess, four different collaborators coming from, from different levels of expertise, um, but... Basically, the way the, the typical day unfolds is we have crews going to the site, to these watersheds, these experimental watersheds, where we have spruce and fir forests and, and some populations of spruce budworm. And some of the things we're doing is we're setting up what we call litterfall traps. Basically, they look kind of like um, funnels made of mesh or screen that catch whatever is falling from the canopy above, which in, in the case of spruce butter outbreak, it means a lot of damaged needles and a lot of insect poop. And that's collecting in these collection devices and these litterfall traps so that we can quantify how much the soil is receiving from the canopy above. And then we have other team members that will be checking data loggers that are recording soil temperature. Um, we have a set of people that are on Louis Pierre's team that are uh, extracting soil cores. And then we, at least once during the field season, we also have a crew that's reaching up into the canopy and with really long pole pruners, cutting down some of the branches in the canopy so that we can sample how much defoliation is happening, how much foliage the canopy is starting to lose as a result of spruce budworm feeding. And so there's a lot of samples and then make it back into the lab and we start processing them and quantifying getting the data from them. Um, some of that I think is still going on right now. Um, some of the samples just go in the freezer and um, we can save them for later. So it sounds like it's a pretty uh, labor-intensive process. Yeah, it, it really can be. It, um, it requires a you know, dedicated team of people that are enthusiastic and are not... Um, worried about getting dirty or getting sweaty or, or scared of bugs in the, in the forest. So, yeah, it can be a, it can be a really cool uh, team-building exercise in, in the end. Definitely. Louis Pia, do you have any uh, interesting stories about working with Michael in the field? Oh, we have a lot of uh, anecdotes and interesting stories. But what my teams and I like working with uh, Michael is the lunch times where we are sharing cheese and, and food with all the students and all the all the crews. You're, sh- you're sharing cheese? Oh, uh, we do, yeah. That sounds pretty uh, exotic. 
So, so what can you elaborate on that, Michael? Yeah, it's, it's, it started off actually uh, as an initiative of, uh, of our collaborator, Steve Hurd at, at the University of New Brunswick, who I think just recognizing that we're in Quebec and the region of Canada known for excellent cheese and charcuterie, um, decided that, hey, we should just all make basically uh, little spreads of different cheeses and, and cold cuts and uh, open up the tailgate of the truck and spread it out there with a cutting board and everybody pitches in and gets to sample all kinds of uh, really nice uh, cheeses from the region. So we've been doing that and it's really fun and completely voluntary. So not so, everyone needs to partake, but it's, it's been really fun. So what you're saying right now is that for years, scientists and researchers have told me that they're roughing it out in the field, but really all of this is catered? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Good, I good think it's to just know. a reward for really hard work. Uh, I, well, I'm sure it's well deserved. That's awesome. Oh yeah, you need to you need to have a few perks along the way for the people doing all the heavy lifting in the field for sure. That's amazing. Thank you guys for agreeing to uh, to talk to us today. Yeah, excellent. Thanks so much. Michael and Louis-Pierre are doing some really fascinating research. So if you want to learn more about spruce budworm or soil carbon, check out the links in the episode description. One of the links provided is the episode that Barb and I talked about in the uh, the introduction um, with Rob Johns called Slowing Down the Spruce Budworm. It's a great listen if you want to learn more about what we're doing at NRCAN to prevent spruce budworm outbreaks. If you like this episode, please subscribe. You can also leave a review or share this episode. If you share it over Twitter, make sure to tag me and also follow me at at Joel Science, all one word. Barb, you're on Twitter now, right? Indeed. I think, I believe you're the first person to follow me. Is that right? I think so. And it was quite the honor. Oh, I I appreciate it. Anyway, (laughs) um, you can find me at at Simply Science B, that's the letter B, and I just set up the account, and last time I checked, I think I had all of about 13 followers. So jump in, give me a follow, and I'll follow you back. And a friendly reminder to everyone listening right now that Simply Science also has a website and a YouTube channel, which you should check out. We have in-depth articles, truly spectacular photos, and interesting videos that showcase the science we do at Natural Resources Canada. And you can find those links in the episode description as well. Well, thank you everyone for listening and we'll see you next episode. See ya, bye.